0: I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanya that's Creole for something extra. A humiliating breakup knocked Kate Campbell off her trajectory of a successful career and an enviable personal life. But it's only after she returns to her hometown roots that she is able to find solace and a new direction for her life. Rock the Boat is author Beck Dory Stein's first novel and our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Rock the Boat is Dory Stein's second book following her New York Times bestselling memoir, From the Corner of the Oval. And author Beck Dory Stein joins me now remotely from Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Under the Radar, Beck.
1: Thanks for having me, Callie. I'm honored to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you. So let's just jump in with the obvious question, what inspired you to write this book? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I would say that this is, in one part, a love letter to New Jersey. I'm from suburban Philadelphia, and my parents have a house in Cape May, New Jersey, so I grew up going there. Um, and then the second part was that in 2015, this is very specific to the book, I was called by my mother. I was living in Washington, D.C., and she goes, have you have you gone to the Cape May house? Like, I won't be mad, just tell me. And I definitely did not have time in my schedule to just fly from Washington to New Jersey on a whim. And it turned out that our uh, the plumber was using the house in the off season as like his own little crash pad, bachelor pad situation. <laughs> and then my parents are, yeah. And then what's really funny is that my parents are not confrontational people. So they kept the plumber for years to come. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did they let him know they knew?
1: No. And then, I, I mean, at one point with the Amazon for like watching for renting movies, the bill was sky high in January. And my dad was <laughs> like, I should just drive down. But it was a blizzard. And I was like, just <laughs> let him have his
0: weekend. <laughs> oh my! And so God. when I
1: wrote the book, it, it centers around these three characters in their 30s who are not anywhere where they thought they would be in their life. They haven't hit those check marks we kind of uh, succumb to in our weaker moments. And one of them is a plumber who has a bad habit of using houses that don't belong to him in the off season. Uh, But I wanted to make him a really sympathetic character because it's so easy to malign someone and be like, that's not your house. But it's like, no, what if this guy actually, you know, has some almost valid reasons for going into this house (laughs) and using this beautiful empty house when no one's there.
0: Now, see, that would be a part of your plot that I would just assume you made up. So, see, you just never know. Uh, Yeah.
1: Truth (laughs) is stranger than fiction every time.
0: (laughs) This is true. So the running theme for your book or the take is that, you know, when life doesn't go to plan. For you, why was this the story to tell about life not going to plan for these 30-somethings, as you said?
1: Oh, gosh, I guess because my life has never gone according to plan. (laughs) And a lot of ways that's worked out to my benefit. Um, I grew up always loving to write and just never thought I'd be able to live as a writer. And so I graduated from college. I started teaching. And then after a few years of teaching in central New Jersey, I decided I needed to shake things up. And this was in 2008, and it's the one time my dad, my very non-confrontational dad was like, please don't leave, Like, there's a huge recession. Please don't leave your job teaching. And I did it anyway, and I, after picking up five part-time jobs in Washington, D.C., waitressing, teaching at three different schools, I applied to a job on Craigslist that landed me in the Obama White House for five years. So it's like, and then from there I pivoted and got to write my first book, and then was able to write a second book, and now I'm writing my third book. But none of this was according to plan ever. And so then when I moved home after the White House to write my two books, I was kind of overwhelmed by the sense of, oh, my gosh, I'm in my 30s. I'm single. I don't have a house. I don't have a significant other. I haven't hit all of these check marks that everyone else around me seems to have hit because I had moved home. And I was just like, okay, I can't be the only one feeling like this. And the more I talked to different people, even if they did have a house or they did have a spouse, it didn't matter. No one felt like they were doing enough. So I kind of wrote it with this idea of everyone just needs to hear that no one feels like they're doing everything right all the time.
0: Hmm. And, you know, what's what's made a lot of people pay attention to your book is the fact that it's a life not going to plan story directed at 30-somethings, because we may have read other stories where life didn't go to plan for people who are older, and that somehow seems to be just an understood reality. Uh, not saying that it's not an understood reality for people who are living real lives, as, as your characters are, but it's not something that I think a lot of people who are writing with young, younger characters in mind have addressed, so it's pretty interesting. Unless it's a biographical piece, you know, a memoir, right unless
1: it's actually true and (laughs) it's what happened and Mm -hmm. then we realize no Mm -hmm. one has done what they thought they would do I'm so glad to hear you say that too because yeah again I just felt like when I moved home people weren't even the like you know especially for women which I really targeted this towards it's um, one of the main characters had this really glamorous life in New York it all implodes and she goes home and her sister her older sister really has it all together and it turns out her older sister who you know is pregnant with her second kid got to kind of take time off from her great job, has a great husband. She is also just dealing with her own identity crisis. And one of my favorite lines in the book is actually this retired school teacher who gets upset about the YA section in the library, the young adult section. She's like, I don't get why they get to quarter the market on coming of age. We're always coming <laughs> of age until we're dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a good line. Uh, well, um, tell us uh, just briefly, I, I try very hard in these conversations not to give away everything, uh, because uh, my listeners get mad if I do. But we have I've mentioned Kate Campbell. That's the young woman who's one of the main characters. Describe a couple of the other ones that so we all are on the same page, so to speak.
1: Yeah, so we've got Kate Campbell, and she's the one who leaves her glamorous life in the city. And then we also have Ziggy Miller, who is the boy next door, but actually across the street. And he's the plumber that I referenced earlier. <laughs> so he um, has never really left this fictional seaside town of Seapoint. Um, he's taken over his father's business. His father passed away very suddenly at a very young age. So Ziggy is very much grappling with his death and whether he can afford to keep the business, um, how he's going to kind of make it work going forward, because it was always very much a partnership between him and his father. And then we also have Miles Hoffman, who is, quote unquote, the Prince of Seapoint. He is Ziggy's best friend he is also unlike ziggy who's very blue collar uh he is the prince so his mother owns this incredibly successful resort called the wharf uh it's really the biggest draw of this town so he has always had his life sort of made for him he ran away from that life he moved to the opposite coast And then, of course, like so many men I've met in my life, as soon as he is told he can't have something, suddenly he really wants it back. So he comes back for the summer to try to show his mother he can actually, you know, stay in this side of the business, even if he doesn't want it. He's not quite sure.
0: Uh, there's some interesting, first of all, I'm really excited that you said outright that the book is a love story to New Jersey because I picked up on that. And it'd be good to have the listeners get a sense of how you have written the book. So I've identified a piece which I believe exhibits your love for New Jersey and its beauty. I wonder if you'd read from there.
1: My pleasure. So this scene, just as a setup, it's it's the three main characters. So it's Kate, Ziggy, and Miles, and they've just had a really fun time out. Stumbling upon the wooden walkway, they heard the waves before they saw the ocean. The sand was so cold that, for a moment, Kate wondered if it was wet as they sat in a semicircle and looked down on their merciless queen. This was the ocean in all her angry candor, her unbridled majesty. There was no bad time to see her, but 2 a.m. was particularly magical, especially with the clear sky they admired tonight. Miles unzipped his pink fanny pack with a showman's flair, a natural master of ceremonies, and offered Ziggy the first hit. Kate traced Orion's belt until Ziggy nudged her past her the joint. Like Clinton, she never inhaled, except that, like Clinton, of course she did. Looking up into the Jersey sky, Kate marveled at the thread of unforeseen circumstances that had led her to this strange but enjoyable moment. She might have drowned in the swirl of stars and thoughts had Miles not called her bogey and asked her to share the spliff. Accepting the joint from Kate, Miles leaned back on his elbows. Here's the thing about Seapoint, he sighed, exhausted from knowing everything. It was too dark to meet Ziggy's gaze, but Kate could feel his head turn to face her. They couldn't see each other, and yet they shared an eye roll through the ink black night while Miles paused for dramatic effect. Only this guy, who'd been back for fewer than 24 hours after 10 years away, would try to tell them about their own town. I've been everywhere, Miles began, and if this beach were anywhere else in the world, people would go crazy over it. Where we are right now is better than anything they've got up on the Cape or even over in California, if you actually want to swim. Is that why you spend so much time here, Ziggy teased. I'm serious, Miles said, staring out at the ocean. The world was nothing but velvet swaths of navy blue and twinkles of silver. Jersey isn't supposed to be this beautiful, Miles said, but it is.
0: That's my guest, Beck Dory stein She's reading from her new novel, Rock the Boat. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar, and we're talking with Beck Dorey-Stein about her first novel. It is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So you've got, of course, a big theme of friendship that runs all through the book. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I was particularly taken with the fact of another theme that it has a, a particular importance. And you really talk about money in this book in all ways. We have kind of an upstairs-downstairs situation with the workers um, at the beach town versus the rich people and the tourists. And then there's Kate, who in her previous relationship was with a guy with a lot of money. And I just thought it was interesting because I think in some ways we still have a kind of taboo thing about talking about money directly. And this felt, um, you know, I think we're accustomed to seeing the the um, Instagram with people doing so well and at the beach and doing whatever. And people don't get down to some of the seriousness of not having enough money. You don't see that in novels a lot. You know, fiction. You just see you know, other, like I said, real life stories, yes. But in fiction, that that's not necessarily been a part why did you decide to put quite a bit of emphasis on that
1: i've just been nodding
0: my head the whole time you've been talking
1: (laughs) um because i think about it all the time i think we all do and so i i guess growing up i grew up in a really nice suburb of philadelphia but i just uh you know grew up in not the nicest part you know went to i've always been very comfortable, have lived a very nice life of privilege, and have also been constantly exposed to this whole other level of wealth. Um, So I went to a really nice public school, all my friends went to the private school, then I went to a college, and that was a whole other level of wealth. And then I worked at the White House, and that was literally going into billionaires' houses for fundraisers. So I've I've gotten this really interesting view throughout my life of, okay, this is what it's like to be comfortable, and then this is what it's like to not even have to work your butt off and be so much more comfortable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's really interesting. And I I think it's in um, Tara Westover's book, Educated. She talks about how once you have money, it opens up your mind so that you can think about everything else that isn't money. And so that's really the ultimate privilege, I think. And so Kate is sort of in the middle. Ziggy definitely is working overtime and Miles doesn't have to work a day in his life. And so I think those three um, and kind of all the gritty spaces in between are really interesting to explore.
0: So I was particularly taken with a piece that I'm going to ask you to read. Kate is involved with her uh, rich boyfriend, but it plays out very interestingly for her because so many of us are trying to fake it, you know, about who we are and what we can afford and what we can't afford, really.
1: Yeah. And I'll I'll say this. My editor, when I wrote this book, was like, I think you're Kate Campbell. And I was like, I'm definitely not Kate Campbell. (laughs) That said, this passage, uh, I can relate to maybe a little too well. When it was time to pay the bill, Thomas would suddenly be on his phone, typing furiously about something sensitive and medical, something that his eyebrows telegraphed as life or death. As a result, Kate paid for the exorbitant groceries. Thomas loved doing taste tests with cheese. The gourmet dinners in, the shockingly expensive brunches out, the never-ending dry cleaning and cab fare. The cabs weren't bad in the beginning. Jane Street was conveniently located after all. But then Thomas's friend, Grady, bought a a luxury condo in Brooklyn with a roof deck that boasted 360-degree views that they loved to visit. It was right around the same time that Grady closed on that condo that Thomas decided switching subway lines was too much of a hassle. Sitting in her parents' house with her sister, Kate realized how intimidated she'd been to talk about money, really talk about it with Thomas. They'd had one conversation about it early on when they were a year out of college and still in their first apartment. Thomas had dragged Kate to see an Ames chair, lounge chair, and ottoman he desperately wanted and which cost a hilarious $5,500, except that Thomas wasn't joking. Kate still remembered how her mouth had hung open as Thomas made delivery arrangements with the sales associate, which is when he turned to her and said, "'How about I get the big things "'and you get the little things?' At the time, it sounded reasonable and that one conversation had guided the next decade of shared expenses. The trouble, Kate learned far too late, was that the little things collected as quietly as the gum wrappers and receipts in the bottom of her bag until she realized the weight she was carrying around amounted to nothing. After all those years, she had no proof of the small things, the monthly Wi-Fi bill, the cab ride home, the $15 side of guacamole, but she was pretty sure they ended up costing more than the big things and without any of the glamor that accompanies a white glove delivery.
0: That's my guess author Beck Dory Stein reading from her novel Rock the Boat. I have to tell you, I was just struck by the specificity of it, which I really think hits home in a way that you meant for it to hit home. Because it's it's so easy to just get caught up in something. But the other part of the story is that she didn't she felt like she couldn't say anything, which is really horrible <laughs>
1: you know? it is and I, I think that's not, I mean I I would hope to think I'm a, I'm a late bloomer but I would hope to think that's a relationship that we have earlier on in our life and that we can escape and that's why again this idea of like she's understandably devastated when the relationship ends and it's the best thing that could have happened because they can't communicate <laughs> yeah
0: even about the the gritty things so now back to the friendship which is a huge you know um, theme in this book. I was just noting that all of your main characters are grieving loss of a relationship, loss of a way of life, loss of an earlier time, loss of an expectation. I assume that's intentional.
1: Yeah. I think uh, I'm glad you picked up on it, but I I think the human existences were almost always grieving something or maybe that's the end of childhood.
0: Yeah. And so I felt that weight uh, it felt uh, quite sharp, particularly as you're knowing how old they are and, and, and they, probably have much more of this to come but it feels really really hard in this moment even harder than let's say you know like a 19 year old would have maybe a, a lost love but it'd be a, a different kind of feeling because you really think you're you kind of not made it but you you know you have a grip on yourself you know I know who I am I'm doing some stuff <laughs> and then you get knocked back a, a by something that you feel at this point in your life, you should be able to handle.
1: Yeah, that again to circle back to this idea of friendship. That's the whole beauty, I think, is that uh, whenever you're totally freaked out, I think most of us tend to kind of like tense up and be like, "How do I get through this?" And that I think the only way through it is is finding the people that can help you get through it. It's hard to shoulder life in general, let alone by yourself.
0: Now there are some who have characterized your book as a millennial come up and story. How do you relate to that? Do you? Does that bother you? That's that's
1: so funny. <laughs> I haven't heard that.
0: You haven't? Oh, okay. <laughs> no,
1: um, but I'll take it. That's so funny. You have really caught me on my heels here. I have not heard that before. Um, I'll take it. Yeah, I I see both sides of it, and also I think uh, a big part, you know, to refute that only in the sense that I think the wisdom in this book does come from older characters. Mm. And I've always Mm -hmm. been drawn to older people in general. But yeah, I'll also, I think that's an
0: interesting take.
1: Hmm. I think I'm complimented that anyone would even think about it that hard to come up with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what they said.
1: (laughs) That's pretty funny.
0: (laughs) So um, why rock the boat? Leaves us to wonder who's rocking the boat or... Is the boat just rocking for everybody? What, what, what did you mean by rock the boat?
1: So rock the boat, um, one of the kind of the, the party that gets everyone together um, is an annual end of summer. The tourists have finally left. It's the day after Labor Day. It's the Tuesday after Labor Day so that all the locals who have been busting their butts all summer can actually attend this party. And it's a ferry that goes between Sea Point and and Delaware Um, and they they, it's just a great time and you just go back and forth (laughs) and so that's like the it's called the rock the boat party and two of the characters uh, Ziggy's parents fell in love on this boat 30 plus years ago so there's that sort of more solid reason and then obviously just this idea of like Everyone is so scared to rock the boat. And if you listen to that funny uh, Hughes Corporation song, the whole idea is you've got to rock the boat.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So your first book, this is about just your writing process, was a memoir. Uh, but you were quite young when you wrote your memoirs, which means we can expect to have some other chapters, kind of like Maya Angelou. You know, she did several chapters of her memoir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so but I'm always curious how when people start with nonfiction, what draws them to fiction?
1: Oh, um, I've, I love fiction. I've always loved fiction. Uh, the fact, I think the the exception to my writing would be the memoir. I, oh. I, I love novels, I've always read novels. Um, I'm not someone who read a bunch of biographies and memoirs before. That was just such a wild time to have gotten a job on Craigslist and end up flying all over the world with President Obama for five years. Um, but no, and also I think one of the highest compliments I've received on from the corner of the oval is that it reads like a novel. Mm. So going forward, it's like I love and having now read, having now written "Rock the Boat," I love the freedom and the latitude that comes with fiction.
0: <laughs> Got you. Okay. Yeah. What do you want readers to take away? That's a question I ask all of my authors.
1: I would say when you finish "Rock the Boat," I hope that one you think about taking a look at New Jersey in a new light. (laughs) And also, and more importantly, it's just, um, giving your friends and more importantly, yourself, cutting yourself a little more slack and just realizing we're all trying to do the best we can. And sometimes it looks really sloppy and that's just how life is. Cause I feel like, especially, uh, in my twenties and definitely now and moving forward I get frustrated with how sloppy my life looks and I think it's just supposed to sort of ooze out sometimes.
0: (laughs) Well Beck Dory Stein thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me Callie this is really a pleasure.
0: Beck Dory Stein is the author of a new novel Rock the Boat her second book after her best-selling memoir From the Corner of the Oval. It's our September selection for Bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at GBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.